Global law and global business go hand in hand, but never seem to keep pace with each other. The importance on the global stage of developing and developed nations waxes and wanes while consumption and interconnectedness steadily increase, all the while laws and regulations change incessantly, requiring businesses to stay nimble. But how do we make sense of it all? Welcome to Global Law and Business, hosted by Harris Brickens, international business attorneys. I'm Fred Rockefort. And I'm Jonathan Bench. Every week, we take a targeted look at legal and economic developments in locales around the world as we try to decipher global trends in law and business with the help of international experts. We cover continents, countries, regimes, governance, finance, legal developments, and whatever is trending on Twitter. We cover the important, the seemingly unimportant, the relatively simple, and the complex. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Please connect with us on social media to comment, and suggest future topics and guests. Today, we are delighted to welcome Robert Faton Jr., the Julia A. Cooper Professor of Government and Foreign Affairs in the Department of Politics at the University of Virginia. Professor Faton is a native of Port-au-Prince, Haiti, and today's podcast will focus on this Caribbean nation. Professor Faton, welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. To get things started, please tell us more about yourself. I'm particularly intrigued as to the path that took you from Port-au-Prince to Charlottesville in Virginia. Well, it's a rather complicated story. Uh, obviously, I, I was born in Haiti. My whole family is from Haiti. We have roots from different groups in Haiti. Slavery is part of my heritage, but at the same time, uh, I'm also a descendant of what used to be called during the colonial period, des affranchis, that is to say, free people of color. And that is basically people of my color, light skin. In Haiti, we call them and we still call them uh, mulators. So I have French blood, African blood, <laughs> you name it, I have it. Uh, when Francois Duvalier came to power in 1957, uh, my family decided to exit the country uh, because of the dictatorship. My father was a businessman, so we left for a few years. We, we, we went to live, actually, uh, for a year in Paris and another four years in Spain. Uh, but then I came back uh, to Haiti, uh, finished my studies in Haiti, high school studies, I got my baccalauréat. Actually, I was at uh, the so-called Lycée Français in Haiti. And after the baccalauréat, I went uh, to Paris, to the University of Paris. I started uh, studying uh, economics, but then uh, for all kinds of uh, personal reasons, I moved to the United States, uh, got my degree in political science and eventually a PhD. And uh, once I got the PhD, the question was whether I was going to go back uh, to the country or whether I was going to stay in the United States. And given the political situation around that time, uh, the decision was that I would stay. And then I applied for a job. And then I got one at the University of Virginia. So I started teaching at UVA since uh, 1981, the fall of 1981. So... I've been here for a long time. It's, it's 40 years, actually. <laughs> was it during your time in Spain 
as a young man that you became a Real Madrid fan or, or did that did that happen later? Oh, I was a contrarian. So I was living in Barcelona. So I just for the heck of it, <laughs> I decided that I was going to be uh, I'm really a maniac when it comes to to football, I mean, soccer. And uh, when I was young, uh, you know, when Haiti qualified for the World Cup, and that's the only time we qualified uh, for a World Cup, I was actually uh, a sportscaster. And uh, I remember being in the stadium and uh, the hysteria that uh, crystallized when Haiti finally made it to the World Cup. So that is something, I mean, if you know anything about Haiti, uh, football is absolutely a passion, and I'm very much uh, 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 passionate of, of football. I wonder, oh, I have my Madrid. <laughs> That's how you found out. <laughs> I'm a big Barcelona fan, so that jumped at me. Not not just today. I saw one of your interviews uh, while I was doing my research, and I and I did notice that. It's been with me since. But um, hey, we welcome we welcome everyone to <laughs> to the podcast. <laughs> you must be a Barcelona fan, or you don't. <laughs> I am a big Barcelona fan, so so it is it is painful to see the scarf. But <laughs> you had a very bad day today with Messi God. <laughs> but that's that's okay. I did go to the Barca games, and I was very young, and they accepted me in a very weird way because I would go to the stadium and I would wear a white jersey. You can imagine, so. And they called me El Loco, the crazy boy. <laughs> so, but that's a long time ago. Uh, Haiti was tragically in the news recently following the assassination of President Jovenel Moïse. We certainly want to get to that, but we would like to set the stage by looking back at Haiti's history. While there may or may not be much of a connection between contemporary events and the Haitian Revolution, the latter was truly a remarkable event for the Americas and indeed the world. What do you think everyone should know about the revolution and does its impact really reverberate to today? Yes, it's a fundamental event actually in world history. Haiti was the first and only uh, slave society, if you wish, where the slaves revolted and successfully did so. They established, you know, a nation, Haiti. And the revolution started around uh, the late, uh, well, 1791 is the date we Haitians think is the important date because there is a ceremony uh, where people are uh, involved in voodoo and uh, they decide that they are going to revolt against uh, French colonialism. But it was a very complicated uh, history before we got our independence because there were many strange alliances. I mean, you have to realize that uh, Saint-Domingue, as it was called then, was the richest colony of the French Empire. It was basically uh, a country dominated by slaves. You had about close to 500,000 slaves, about 30,000 or so uh, white colonists, and about uh, something like 30,000 Afranchi. And the Afranchi is not just people of my, of my skin color. You had actually uh, blacks who were previously slaves who were part of the Afranchi. And one of the uh, paradigmatic figures is one of the key 
uh, leaders of the Haitian Revolution, Toussaint Louverture, who was born as a slave, uh, got his freedom, became an affranchi, and actually became a slave owner. And then he became the main leader of the revolution till he's captured by French troops in uh, 1802. Uh, and uh, Toussaint is a paradigmatic figure because you have all of the contradictions, if you wish, of the colonial society. Slaves, uh, f- free colored people, so-called. Uh, and within the white society, too, you had uh, a hierarchy. You had the so-called Grand Blanc and Petit Blanc. The Grand Blanc was really the plantation owner with vast plantations and a lot of slaves. And the Petit Blanc may have had a plot of land, he may have had a few slaves, but that was re- really the bottom of uh, the white society. So when the slaves decided to revolt, they had to get into alliances with the British, uh, with uh, the the Spaniards. But then, uh, as a result of the French Revolution, slavery was abolished in 1794, I think. And at that point, uh, the Haitians who were revolting uh, decided, well, the French side is the better side, precisely because there is no longer any slavery. Uh, and uh, that required a, a fight against the white colonists who were not prepared to surrender uh, slavery. And eventually, uh, by the uh, late 1700s, uh, the, the slaves of the upper end, Toussaint declares himself in 1801 as the governor uh, of uh, Saint-Domingue. Uh, but uh, Toussaint is still French, and in, also in his mind is still French. He's a French general. That's one of the contradictions. And, he, uh, and when Napoleon comes to power, uh, initially uh, Toussaint wants a deal with Napoleon. And by that I mean Toussaint writes to Napoleon that he wants uh, essentially uh, full autonomy, of Haiti, or of Saint-Domingue at that time it was called, but at the same time that he wanted full autonomy, he wanted to be part of the French community, as it were. And Napoleon would have none of it. Uh, And Napoleon ultimately decided that he was going to restore slavery. Uh, So that led to a series of events. He would neutralize Toussaint, uh, capture him, and then send him to France, uh, to the Fort de Joux uh, in the northeast of France near uh, the city of Besançon. Toussaint would die there in 1803, but the intention of Napoleon was that if you captured Toussaint, well, the revolution would be decapitated and the French would take over again. Uh, Haiti and slavery would be reestablished. And one of the interesting things is that uh, that idea of Napoleon to use Haiti as a base was quite important in what uh, became known as the Louisiana Purchase. Uh, And many Americans don't know much about it, but the Louisiana Purchase was to a large degree a consequence of what was going on in Haiti because they... Uh, idea of Napoleon was that we'll stop in Haiti, reestablish slavery, and then we are going to move uh, to Louisiana. 
and clearly that didn't work. Uh, the, the French were defeated, the army was uh, decimated, and the United States uh, under Jefferson uh, got uh, the Louisiana Purchase, which essentially doubled the territory of the United States. So one of the consequences of the uh, Asian Revolution is really the expansion of the territorial uh, continent, if you wish, of the United States. Uh, but to go back now to Haiti, uh, when Toussaint was captured and uh, sent to France, uh, new leaders emerged. They were already there, but they really became the key uh, figures of the Haitian Revolution. And there are three of them. The main one is Jean-Jacques Dessalines, who's the founder uh, uh, of Haiti. And then you had uh, Pétion and you had uh, Christophe. Uh, Dessalines called himself an, emp uh, an emperor. Uh, and that also gives you some understanding of the kind of authoritarian uh, feature that we find in Haitian politics. Most Haitian leaders have had uh, that kind of messianic vision of themselves. And that is from the very beginning. Uh, Toussaint was governor for life when he had this constitution of 1801. And uh, uh, Jean-Jacques Dessalines was an emperor and the constitution allowed him, as it were, uh, to, uh, to pick his successor. So you have a tradition of, uh, of authoritarianism. At the same time, you have that tradition of freedom because clearly the revolution was about freedom. It was about the abolition of slavery. And that is a significant event in world history because, as I've said, this is the only country that managed uh, to establish uh, a black nation in a white supremacist order. Uh, so that is very important. It's really probably the most radical revolution of the times uh, insofar as race was no longer going to be a category that, that would uh, allow people to be enslaved. Uh, and that's a significant departure from what existed uh, at the time uh, because the world order was basically a white supremacist order. Uh, and Haiti suffered as a consequence of that Clearly, because uh, Haiti was, from the very beginning, a paria nation. In other words, uh, the major powers did not particularly uh, enjoy the idea that you, you would have a black nation, uh, let alone that slaves could have been successful at the revolution, given that slavery was fundamental to the world economy at the time and fundamental uh, to... Uh, the United States, and in particular, the southern part of the United States. So that was a major challenge uh, to white supremacy, major challenge to some of uh, the structures of that world order at the time. And uh, the response, obviously, was to treat Haiti as a paria nation. And it wasn't always the case. And if you look at Jefferson, for instance, very interesting dealings with Haiti. Uh, Jefferson, uh, at one point during the revolution, for his own strategic interest, uh, sent weapons to the Haitian revolutionaries because he wanted you know, the weakening of the French. 
But once Haiti became an independent nation, Haiti was no longer uh, really to be treated with that kind uh, uh, of, uh, of gestures, if you wish. Uh, and there was basically kind of an embargo imposed on Haiti. Those, there were uh, certain economic acti activities that persisted. And uh, Jean-Jacques Dessalines actually wanted good relations with the United States. Uh, he even wrote to Jefferson, uh, telling him, well, I, I can understand essentially that uh, you're afraid of Haiti because uh, a revolution could spread and that could affect your interests. But don't worry, we are not going to spread any revolution. Well, Jefferson never answered that. And uh, uh, the United States basically treated Haiti as a paria nation. And the United States recognized ha Haiti only uh, under uh, Lincoln. And I think that was in 1862. So... What, what what we may uh, get from the Haitian Revolution is that it was extremely radical for the time. It abolished slavery. It was the first and only slave revolution that uh, was successful. And it operated once Haiti became independent in a very hostile uh, environment. Uh, and it created certain key opportunities for the United States, like the Louisiana Purchase and the decline of French uh, power in the Americas. And so what does this history mean for a contemporary Haitian, let's say? How do they view history? Um, how do they view themselves through the lens of history, through what they've accomplished in terms of national identity um, and also relationships with, with the rest of the world? Well, Haitians are obviously quite proud of their revolution. 1804 is a mythical uh, element in, if you wish, uh, Haitian culture. Uh, it, it is key to understanding uh, the Haitian psyche. Uh, Haitians are extremely uh, nationalistic and proud. Now, on the other hand, uh, there are things that undermine that kind of uh, uh, nationalism uh, because uh, Haitian leaders have always had uh, uh, kind of a peculiar interest to develop relationship with foreign powers. And this is something that has persisted up to this day. And what I mean by that is that uh, Haitian society was not egalitarian in spite of the fact that the revolution abolished slavery. You clearly had fundamental class and color uh, divisions. Uh, the class divisions were fairly obvious. Uh, the top military officers after the revolution, they received the best land and in a disproportionate amount. So there was a fundamental division between the rulers, if you wish, the military uh, uh, generals and officers, and the rest of the population. That division has remained. And the division was, to some extent, a product not only of uh, the Haitian leaders' uh, corporate interests, but also because of the world economy. If Haiti was to survive economically, at the time, it needed to reestablish the plantation uh, economy. Now, at the time, 
the plantation economy required forced labor or even slave labor. And all of the Haitian leaders, whether it be Toussaint, Louverture, Pétion, uh, or Boyer, or Christophe, they wanted to establish what was called in Haiti a code rural. And that's basically uh, a very coercive form of compelling uh, the newly freed slaves to stay on the plantation to produce sugar and to cut, uh, you know, uh, uh, sugarcane. And not surprisingly, the newly freed, freed uh, slaves would have none of it. Uh, so what happened is that the attempt to reestablish the plantation economy was a failure because the peasants decided that they would withdraw from that economy, that they would have their own plot of land and that they wouldn't have anything to do with the state because the state was a coercive, a predatory structure in their view, and rightfully so. So you had that tension between the rulers and, uh, at the time, what you might call the peasantry, uh, the vast majority of Haitians, and you've had that division. But then you also have divisions in terms of color between, uh, you know, light-skinned Haitians who are in a minority and uh, the majority which is black, although black in the constitution of Haiti is everyone who is in Haiti. But the color issue was important and remains so because uh, the light-skinned uh, Haitians have tended even under the colonial period, to have more privileges and advantages than the blacks. Uh, so up to this day, the lights can tend to dominate uh, the private sector and the commercial sector. Now, that, this is not to say that you don't have, if you wish, a black bourgeoisie. You do have it. But for political purposes, especially when you have elections, the color question can be reasserted for the benefits of certain politicians. So you can isolate uh, the minority and force them, if you wish, outside of the political system. But the color question is important. I think it's personally, uh, uh, it is a cover to mask other things. Uh, because if you look at, uh, I mean, for instance, if you were to look at the Duvalier regime, uh, it, it was a black regime and it was one of the most exploitative regime in Haiti. So for me, the color question is a mask uh, hiding other things and serving the interest of certain political actors. The class questions remain a fundamental one in Haiti. The, the wealth is very unevenly uh, uh, divided. Uh, about 5% of the population essentially controls 90% uh, of the wealth in Haiti. And uh, you have a very small, uh, if you wish to call it that, uh, middle class, and the rest is rather poor, and you also have extreme poverty. Unfortunately, the time constraints of a podcast like this do not allow us to go into all the detail, frankly, that the history of, of a country like Haiti merits. There, there is just so much there. But before we, we turn to recent events, there, there is one a facet of, of the history that I, that I would like to ask you about, and more than anything, to, to help inform our listeners who might not be aware of this. But 
What about U.S. interventions in Haiti? I know during your last answer, you alluded to these relationships that Haitian leaders have developed at times, right? This, this um, interest in, in developing relationships with outside powers. I wonder if, if that's part of the story. But in any case, I would love to hear more about the U.S. interventions in Haitian political life and, and the, the consequences that those interventions have, have had. Well, the major intervention, uh, the first major intervention really occurred uh, in the early part of the 20th century. Uh, the United States occupied Haiti uh, from 1915 to 1934. Uh, that was not just a matter of, uh, to put it crudely, the United States uh, meddling into its own quote-unquote backyard. Uh, and you had the Monroe Doctrine, uh, which was quite important in justifying that intervention because to some extent, uh, the U.S. was fearful that German or French interest would be preponderant in Haiti and they wanted to keep the Caribbean in their own zone of influence. That's one element. Uh, the United States had become really uh, a major power at that time. Uh, the second element is that they wanted uh, uh, stability. And this is a word that we hear uh, continuously on the part of the international community and the United States. And Haiti had had severe uh, political instability at that time. Uh, it was partly caused by uh, the debt that Haiti had accumulated. And it's a debt that uh, was to some extent connected to an earlier debt. And we haven't talked about it, but I'll just mention it because you hear a lot about it. And that's the so-called French indemnity. And the French indemnity was uh, the debt that uh, Haiti incurred uh, towards the French in 1825. Uh, the French sent uh, uh, gunboats in the harbor of, of, of Port-au-Prince, threatening uh, the government of Boyer, and if Boyer was not to repay the debt, then the likelihood would have been a new form of direct French control, a new colonial uh, establishment. So Boyer was compelled to a large degree uh, to accept uh, to pay that indemnity, which was kind of a weird thing. You defeat someone, comes back and tells you, I'm going to defeat you, uh, and you have to pay for, uh, for the indemnity to slave owners. But Besides that, and it was a very important amount of money. It's considered to be uh, now the equivalent of something like $25 billion. Now, this is where the, the interesting part comes. It's not just French threats to uh, the Boyer regime. It's also uh, the corporate interests of Boyer and the rulers uh, uh, in Haiti, the dominant actors in Haiti, because... Boyer was fearful, and he was not the only one. It started around uh, uh, 1810. They were fearful that if the French came back, then the property of the dominant groups in Haiti would be seized again by the French colonialists. And this is something that they didn't want. So paying the debt was very opportunistic. It was very harmful to Haiti. But on the other hand, it secured the property of those groups. Uh, so you have that kind of opportunistic convergence of interest between those Haitian rulers and the French. 
Now, when the United States come in uh, uh, 1915, there is the debt, and it's part of repaying the indemnity. Uh, and it's also part, as I've said, of the growing power of the United States. And before the occupation per se, uh, the U.S. had sent Marines, they seized the central bank of Haiti, took whatever was left there, it's calculated something like half a million uh, dollars, they took it and brought it to Citibank in New York. So that was clearly a way to assert American power and that the Haitians would have to repay their debt to the United States. By 1915, uh, the situation in Haiti is really very unstable, partly because of that event, but also because of different regional uh, revolts in the country. And uh, uh, the event that uh, serves as an excuse for the occupation is the killing in 1915 of the president, uh, Guillaume Sam. Uh, and uh, Guillaume Sam was essentially taken by a mob and uh, killed. Uh, that set all kinds of political uh, plots among the Haitian uh, uh, politic political class. But the United States intervened and said, enough of that. We are going to intervene. And the United States became uh, a de facto colonial power. Uh, there was a government several governments, but they were truly in the hands of the United States. And that occupation was also uh, very instrumental in the establishment of centralized power in Port-au-Prince. Uh, prior to the arrival of uh, the U.S., the country was uh, divided into uh, provinces. Obviously, Port-au-Prince was still dominant, but it wasn't as we call it now, uh, La République de Port-au-Prince. And you had uh, pol politicians coming from the north, from the south, with their own uh, militias, actually, uh, to claim power in Port-au-Prince. With the arrival of the United States, that stops. Uh, the resistance to, American, to the American occupation was also brutally... Uh, ended uh, by the Marines. And there was a significant amount, and not surprisingly so at the time, uh, racism in the way uh, the American Marines treated the Haitians. Uh, most of them actually uh, came from the South. Uh, and Wilson was the president at the time, a Southerner. So that kind of relationship was one that truly uh, characterized relations between the American occupiers and the Haitians. And it provoked resistance, but it also generated patterns of accommodation because the people who became the presidents and the senators, many of them were essentially picked by the United States. And they were given uh, power and some privileges by virtue of allying themselves with the, uh, with the U.S., Definitely a lot of a lot of threads that we could pull there, but let's turn to more more recent events, specifically the assassination of, of President Moise. What is the context? Because we're really talking about an event that that occurred a few weeks ago. What what is the context in which this assassination to, took place? To the extent that that we know, what were the proximate causes of the assassination? And sort of turning back a little bit, do we see 
a connecting thread to some of Haiti's previous history. I, some of the things you mentioned, right? Assassinations taking place right before the U.S. occupation, these uh, autocratic tendencies of some of the leaders. There, there, there would seem to be some connections, but, but that might be more optics than anything else. Would, would really appreciate your, your thoughts on this assassination and, and, and again, the context in which it took place. Well, the assassination was really uh, rather uh, unique in the sense that the last assassination was the assassination that precipitated, if you wish, the American occupation. So that's more than a century ago. Uh, Haitian leaders uh, who have been deposed are not deposed, at least recently, uh, through assassinations. They are given... uh, the opportunity, if you wish to put it in those terms, to go to the airport uh, and get into a plane and fly into exile. That happened, for instance, to uh, Aristide uh, twice. Uh, It happened, obviously, to Jean-Claude Duvalier. Uh, And uh, to some extent, when a leader is no longer popular, killing (laughs) has not been... Uh, part of the recent history. So it's a rather unique event. And it's even more unique because it took place under very mysterious uh, circumstances. I mean, this is the president of Haiti. He is in his own private residence. It's supposed to be secured. It's supposed to have at least three perimeters of security. And... uh, the president is killed in his own bedroom. Uh, the security is nowhere to be seen, or if it was there, it clearly didn't oppose the assailants. And then you have the rather peculiar combination of uh, foreign uh, meddling, if you wish, with Colombian mercenaries, with Haitian Americans in uh, Miami with uh, a, a pastor, <laughs> Asian American <laughs> living in Miami. The funding apparently took place also uh, through uh, a financial uh, cooperation in Miami. And the security uh, uh, agency that recruited supposedly those, uh, uh, those mercenaries uh, was in Miami. But most Haitians don't believe, actually, that uh, the, the pastor, uh, uh, you know, a fellow by the name of uh, Christian Sano, was not really the main figure behind the assassination. Uh, he was probably used by those who uh, committed the crime and paid for the crime. And you have different stories circulating in Haiti. One is that the mercenaries got in the house and killed him. Now, if you read the Colombian press, and actually now the Haitian press, the dominant narrative is that the Colombians didn't kill the president. They arrived after the assassination of the president. Uh, And not only did they arrive after the assassination, but they left immediately. They didn't even pay attention uh, to uh, Rovnel Moïse, who was dead, and his wife was injured. And it's only a Haitian uh, police uh, individual by the name of Vladimir Parison who arrived alone in the house, saw the wife of the president, 
she was uh, injured, uh, her kids were taking care of her. And Parison says that he assumed that the president was dead, but he wasn't sure. So he went to the bedroom and saw the president dead uh, uh, in a very uh, uh, nasty uh, uh, condition. Uh, so there are mysteries about who committed the crime. Uh, there are mysteries about who financed the crime. And finally, there is a mystery as to who, whom would be benefiting from the assassination of uh, Jovenel Moïse. And personally, I don't see who would benefit from it. Now, Jovenel Moïse was quite unpopular. He had many enemies. And uh, his uh, rule was very controversial in Haiti. He had been accused of embezzlement. Uh, there were massive protests uh, two years ago that essentially locked down the country. That's prior to the lockdowns of COVID. Uh, and in the last year, he was running the country by uh, decree. And uh, there had been no elections. Uh, the parliament was no longer existent. There were 10 senators left out of 30 who had been elected, but the Senate was also dismissed. Uh, so you had, uh, a, as we call them in Haiti, a de facto president, because the vast majority of Haitians did not recognize him as a legitimate president. The argument that he, was, he had prolonged his stay in the presidency for a year, uh, uh, and that he was running the country by decree, that he wanted also to change the constitu constitution illegally. There was supposed to be a referendum, and then there was supposed to be an election in September. And the election uh, was seen as an illegitimate process by the Haitian opposition and by Haitian civil society. The argument here is that the Electoral Council was handpicked by Jovenel Moïse, so it was going to essentially uh, conduct fraudulent elections and someone from Moïse's own party would be uh, re-elected. Uh, and the constitution was violated. So this is the context within which you understand the, the assassination. Although, as I've said, it's not at all clear to me that anyone would benefit from it. Now, Moïse had created enemies, and you hear now from his wife, for instance, and from his supporters, that he was killed by oligarchs, wealthy people, and essentially what they call the Syrian Lebanese uh, a, a financial elite. Uh, and that, to me, is also something that is rather paradoxical, because many of those people were actually supporters of Jovenel Moïse when he was elected. Uh, and the main name that has been mentioned is a fellow by the name of Boulos, a doctor. And if you were to watch the electoral campaign of Jovenel Moïse, in many instances, Boulos was next to him. So, and it's not as if Jovenel Moïse was a poor guy. He came from very humble beginnings, but he was a wealthy fellow. Uh, he had been the president of the Chamber of Commerce in the North, uh, and he was handpicked by the previous president, uh, Martelly. So 
the idea that oligarchs would do it, it's not impossible, but I don't see what they would have gained from it. The, the oligarchs, they like stability to conduct their business, but there might have been uh, contracts that were not signed. Uh, there might have been challenges to uh, their their financial dominance with others in the oligarchy. So it's a murky kind of environment. But at the moment, it's very clear that it's very unclear whether anyone could benefit from it. Uh, and the final twist is clearly that uh, Moïse had uh, said that uh, last February there was an attempted coup. And uh, he had picked some of the members of the Supreme Court and sent them to jail. Uh, they were eventually released. At the time, most people had assumed that this was really some sort of a fake kind of uh, uh, assassination attempt to put his adversaries in jail. But it may well be that there is a connection between that attempted assassination, which failed clearly, and the one that occurred on July 7th. Uh, and one of the important persons in that uh, kind of uh, plot is uh, a woman by the name of uh, Koch, and she's a Supreme Court member. And she had been mentioned in February, and now she's one of the figures who's apparently in hiding, and the police wants to arrest her because many of the uh, Colombians and the Haitian Americans have declared that she was supposed to have become the president. Uh, and this is another twist, too, because there seems to have been two plots in one plot. The first plot, the one whereby that Supreme uh, Court justice uh, by the name of Koch would have been president, uh, had apparently uh, implied the kidnapping or the arrest of Jovenel Moïse, but not his killing. And he would have been brought to the National Palace. He would have signed his resignation. And Madame Koch, the Supreme Justice, would have become president. Now, they, clearly that didn't happen. And clearly the idea of kidnapping or arresting the president did not materialize. They killed him. And some people uh, in the know, as it were, uh, um, have said that it is only at the last moment that the decision to assassinate Jovenel Moïse, it's only at the last moment that that decision was taken. So it's a very mysterious and complicated story and rather bizarre. So looking ahead, where do you see Haiti going from here? It clearly has enormous potential for tourism. What are some of the economic pathways available for the country? How do we make uh, foreign companies that want to do business with Haiti uh, feel secure in in what's going on, right? How long will it take to get the governance back uh, secure in, in a way that uh, business leaders feel like Haiti is, uh, is once again safe to do business? Well, the political crisis is really uh, very uh, significant. The government uh, now is uh, very weak. Uh, and it's perceived by civil society and clearly by the opposition as illegitimate. And they perceive it as illegitimate not only because uh, there is no constitution functioning, there is no parliament, 
but because uh, the current prime minister was designated by Jovenel Moïse, and initially he was marginalized by the international community because the current foreign minister, a fellow by the name of Claude Joseph, had been picked by the international community to be the leader. And very suddenly, the international community changed its mind and they said, no, it's Ariel Henry who had been designated by the president who should be prime minister. Now, the designation of Ariel Henry, even prior to uh, his assassination, was very controversial because there was no parliament and the president was uh, running uh, the country by decree. Uh, so now, uh, while he's a de facto prime minister, uh, he lacks legitimacy. And uh, civil society and the opposition are trying to find what they call the Haitian solution to Haitian problems. But that is a complicated business because the opposition is divided and civil society is also divided. But there is an attempt to create an alternative structure with a provisional president who would have a provisional prime minister, and that government would in turn establish the conditions for an election, uh, but not immediately. They are talking about the transition. Some of them are talking a transition of two years or a year. And on the other hand, you have uh, Ariel Henry who says there is not going to be a transitional president, that I am the prime minister and I am going to have elections fairly soon. Those two claims are not uh, <laughs> reconcilable. Uh, so you have that kind of tension. And then you have the international community, which so far has been very much behind Ariel Henry. But it is not clear that this is going to continue because that will depend on the uh, internal uh, situation uh, in Haiti, on whether the opposition is going to be able to coalesce and compel Henri to have a transitional government and a transitional president and a transitional uh, prime minister who might not be Ariel Henry. Uh, so the situation is very complicated. Uh, but you, you need clearly uh, conditions for elections. And at the moment, I just don't see that those conditions are really uh, there. Uh, you, you have a serious problem of security. Uh, you have uh, gangs controlling uh, huge chunks of Port-au-Prince and in some of the uh, provinces too. Uh, and if you look at those gangs, uh, they are in, in the business of kidnapping, of fighting each other, although there is an alliance, but they still fight each other for control over uh, turf in particular in the slums of Port-au-Prince. And you have about 2 million people there. So having elections in Port-au-Prince is really virtually impossible. It's not only that. Uh, the logistics uh, to have those elections uh, are not in place. And thirdly, you have an electoral council that is completely illegitimate in the eyes of most Haitians. So you would need a new electoral council. 
the 12th new electoral council would require very long negotiations between the different parties, the civil society, the government. So in spite of the fact that Ariel has promised elections soon, I don't see that happening. And if they were to happen, I think they would not resolve anything. I think they would exacerbate the current crisis because uh, whomever would be elected would be immediately perceived as illegitimate. So the crisis would continue uh, to exist. So we have a very complicated uh, transition to something that we have yet to really understand. And then you have obviously the... uh, the political and legal consequences of the investigations uh, that are ongoing uh, related to the assassination of the president. Uh, And that is another explosive uh, 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 issue, whether we are going to really get to the bottom of of that uh, assassination, whether the people who killed him are going to be uh, found and clearly, whomever financed the, the assassination, whether that person or that group of person uh, will uh, be identified. So all of that is extremely complicated. In the last few days, there was an attempt to find a judge who would actually uh, preside over the investigation. In other words, the investigation is moving from as moved from the police uh, to the judicial system. And it's only yesterday that they found a judge uh, willing to do it because the other judge said, well, <laughs> this is too dangerous, basically. Uh, and that judge is a controversial <coughs> judge because many people in Haiti uh, see him as the judge of the party in power. Now, whether that's true or not uh, is... Uh, Another question, but he's in charge and he has very limited time. According to uh, the judicial system in Haiti, uh, the investigation can last only for about three months. Uh, We've had already a month of investigation and uh, the situation is still very mysterious. Uh, And I don't know if that is going to change, uh, but it's an explosive uh, dossier. And uh, that might exacerbate uh, the current crisis, whether we find or we don't find those who were behind the assassination. Such a fascinating conversation. Just covering Haiti, we could go on. And unfortunately, again, the time doesn't allow us to go into other areas. We would have loved to to talk a little bit more about uh, your work and including uh, work that, that's not focused on Haiti. But before we, we sign off, we, we'd like to ask you for recommendations that you might have for our listeners. They can be related to Haiti, but they don't have to be. Yeah, well, there, there, are, there are a few books that are uh, very important if you want to understand the revolution. There is a classic, uh, which is by C.L.R. James, which is called The Black Jacobin. There are more recent uh, uh, books. There is a book by a colleague of mine. Uh, His name is Laurent Dubois. It's called The Avengers of the New World, which is also a a more uh, recent um, history of that revolution. Uh, There is uh, on Netflix actually something uh, by a Haitian uh, cinematographer 
and I forget the name, but it's really the history of colonialism. And it has been recently uh, 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 on Netflix. I think it's still uh, on uh, Netflix. And I have a senior move, but I forget the name. And I know him, which is very embarrassing. Uh, but uh, this is a, a very interesting story about what colonialism entailed and the consequences of colonialism, not just for the economy of the colonial areas, but also about the structure of uh, the world system and the issue of race and racism. Uh, so it's a very powerful, uh, to some extent, very uh, moving, and at the same time, depressing story about uh, uh, that facet of world history. Excellent. Jotham, uh, what about you? I'm still in Olympics mode. And so I read an article probably in the last week, and it's about uh, transgender Olympic athletes competing in women's sports. Uh, it's a Deseret News article from uh, end of July. Uh, and it was interesting because I've I've been curious about this. You know, I, I consider myself fairly athletic. And so um, I, I wanted to kind of get into the bedrock principles of, of what's being argued about and why and who's arguing what. Uh, it's a great article, not a super long read, but uh, very interesting. And uh, I think the title was Male to Female Transgender Olympic Athletes Impact Women's Sports. So I highly recommend that if you're curious on, on that topic. Fred, what do you have for us? So sticking to, to the topic at hand, uh, there's um, a video on YouTube called The Side of Haiti You've Never Seen. This is basically a travel vlog, you know, by, by a guy called, by, by two guys called Oscar with a K and Dan. Shouldn't be too, too hard to find on, on YouTube. But what I really enjoyed about it was the stunning images um you know these guys uh this is actually the second uh of their videos the first video was more uh, documenting their initial impressions their their arrival um and it also does have some some pretty amazing visuals but as they start to discover what the country has to offer right they go up into the mountains uh surrounding port-au-prince and the views were just stunning uh, i um you know I'm, I'm from the caribbean myself i'm from puerto rico so i I, it didn't surprise me that there is such beauty in Haiti in principle, but to actually see, I mean, I just, I just had no idea. So it was, it was fantastic, really, really stunning images. And then in that second episode, they, or that second video, they, 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 they go further into, into the countryside and just amazing, amazing, uh, beautiful images. So if, if you're curious as to what Haiti looks like and you're looking for something relatively casual to look at, that would be a, a good starting point and then hopefully move on to the more serious recommendations made by Professor Faton. So on that note, I'd like to, to thank you for this conversation. It's been fascinating. I would have enjoyed it at any time, but especially in this uh, moment when, when obviously Haiti has, has been in the news, it was, it was very timely. So, so thank you. And hopefully we can have you back on the podcast before too long and we can talk about some other topics and explore what, what has happened in, in Haiti in the interim. Well, thank you so much. And thank you for saying that uh, the country is absolutely a beautiful country with a very fascinating culture. And the tragedy is that when we talk about Haiti, we tend to concentrate 
on the kind of events that uh, occurred in July. But the country itself is beautiful. And Haitians have kept uh, that very good habit of laughing. Even in horrible situations, we laugh. And when I talk about Haiti in very depressing terms, I sometimes laugh and people are very puzzled. And it's kind of something that Haitians understand. If you don't laugh, you're going to be so depressed to see that beauty uh, really destroyed by uh, a terrible economy and a terrible political system. So we have to keep our sense of humor. Uh, and uh, if you were to follow the Haitian radios uh, on uh, uh, YouTube, the humor is always there, even when they are talking about an assassination, which is very peculiar, but it is there. And Creole is a very powerful uh, language to express that humor. So there is a very different side. Uh, and I like to think also to finish that we have the best rum in the world, but that <laughs> others might, <laughs> might disagree. <laughs> My experiences with Haitian rum have been very positive. So limited as they are, but they have been very, very positive. You are prompting me to um, do some further research into that area. You should get a Bar Bancourt, a five-star Bar Bancourt. That's my recommendation. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Professor Faton. It's been wonderful. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Global Law and Business is a production of Harris Bricken. The team includes Madeline Williams and Michaela Moore. The music is composed by Stephen Schmidt. If you like the show, subscribe on iTunes and leave us a review there. We like to hear what you think of the show, and it helps new listeners find us. Tune in next week for another episode. We'll see you then. Thank you.